0: many uh, Chinese herbal uses. they
1: have that in ice
0: cream? Um, They do have tofu, but but not stinky tofu. Mm. Um, We also have on our list rice cakes. Oh. And that's it. I think you got everything else. Oh, I was so you. worried the intestine was gonna be on there. <laughs> like I was not ready for that. I love ice cream. That's the you thing. You like, like ice cream. Ice cream is my favorite dessert of all time. And you know
2: Taiwanese food, right? You know all the flavors that go in. Yeah, but like it's same.
0: surprising that I think we just gave them more ideas if they're watching. <laughs> no, really. Like, I, was like, oh, I think I could put a Boba sausage Boba in, in an ice great. cream. Well, I think you guys did a fantastic job, and that is our brain game for this week. From a fruit market in Tel Aviv to a fish seller in Taipei, the people of our world are working hard to make a living. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International.
2: What's this all about? Why are they doing that? What's going on here? It's Curious John. What is he curious
1: about today?
2: It began as a popular entertainment performed seasonally by farmers and while it's since evolved into an elaborate modern art form, its simple rustic roots have never really been forgotten in the countryside that gave birth to it. Gua'ahi, better known in English as Taiwanese opera, is a tree with many branches, but its pure, original form, the roots if you like, lie in the Lanyang Plain, a triangular area of rich farmland hemmed in by mountains on Taiwan's northeast coast. The tree metaphor is more than a convenient way of explaining the art form's growth. It's especially apt because local stories say that some of the earliest performances took place beneath a particular tree. And as we'll hear today, this tree's demise helped draw attention back to these simple beginnings. A new exhibit at the Lanyang Museum charts the art form's development in the local soil. The museum's Liu Wei Zhen joined me on the line this week for a look at this new exhibit. But due to an unfortunate technical glitch that still confounds our finest engineers, All but the last minute of the interview has disappeared. Fortunately, I was taking notes. So this week it seems I'm on my own. I hope you'll still stick around for the ride as well though. Taiwanese opera isn't that old. It's only been around for around a century. It started as a simple way for farmers in northeast Taiwan to pass the time during the off-season when there were no crops to tend to and the fields were left to rest. The opera, as originally performed, was in some ways close to the more famous and well-known opera traditions of China. For example, you'll find the same stock character types you would also find in Peking or Cantonese opera. The stories too are derived from Chinese literature, and the musical style has a lot in common with its Chinese counterparts too. But here the commonalities end. For one thing, there were originally no costumes and no makeup. And the band consisted only of 7 simple instruments, mostly simple percussion and a fiddle built around a coconut shell. There was no stage either. Only a crude frame made of bamboo laid out on the ground was used to separate performers from the audience. And unlike Peking Opera for instance, Taiwanese opera, as traditionally performed, has a body of only 4 plays. Scripts and musical accompaniment were not written down for several decades, they were instead passed down orally. And the performers were just country folk entertaining one another, not professional actors or musicians in any sense. The time when this art form starts to emerge roughly coincides with the beginning of Japanese colonial rule on Taiwan. In the countryside, the fledgling opera was allowed to find its own path undisturbed. But from around the 1920s, things began to change a little bit. Firstly, professionals started taking up the art form and making it a bit more fancy. It also started to find audiences outside its home area on the Lanyang Plain, gradually spreading in popularity across Taiwan. Unlike the other entertainments available at the time, like puppet theater for instance, this was a uniquely Taiwanese art form, one that had inspiration from elsewhere but grew up entirely in Taiwan. The period leading up to World War II was a tough one for Taiwanese culture and it might have spelled the end of the local opera altogether. Ms. Liu said that Japanese colonial officials made assimilating their Taiwanese subjects into Japanese ways a priority, and local cultural expression was repressed. But performers of the opera kept on in secret. They would dress in Japanese clothing, and they'd be on the lookout in case any policemen or officials came around for a sudden inspection. If that did happen, they would suddenly switch to Japanese military songs and pretend like that's what they'd been performing all along. In the post-war period, everything should have been good for performers of the local opera. Japanese rule ended and the pre-war restrictions were lifted. The new Republic of China government was not a big fan of the Hokkien vernacular in which the plays were performed, preferring the new official Mandarin Chinese. But it seems like the new officials largely left the opera alone. Radios, and later TVs, came into almost every household as Taiwan grew more prosperous through the post-war decades. And far from competing with the opera, these new gadgets spread its popularity even further. Opera troops seemed to have made the leap to radio, TV, and even film flawlessly. The problem was that there was now other competition, and Taiwanese opera would have to adapt to compete. These were older and more elaborate forms of opera brought over to Taiwan after World War II by Chinese refugees fleeing communism. These are forms that are probably better known overseas, forms like Peking Opera and Kunqu. The actors in these types of opera often had beautiful costumes and fantastic makeup. And while this wouldn't have been a problem in the days of radio, once televised opera became popular, something had to give. If Taiwanese opera troops were going to compete, they had to make their presentation more exciting. Their actors would need dazzling costumes of their own. And if they were going to serialize productions, like other troops, they'd also need new plays. The four old storylines alone just wouldn't cut it. Taiwanese opera troops borrowed heavily from the other competing opera traditions and new writers came in to create new plays with exciting backdrops, elaborate props, even replacing the small bands with bigger orchestras with an expanded range of instruments. There was now more choreography and maybe even room for special effects here and there. Ms. Leo made it clear that this wasn't necessarily a bad thing. People loved it, in fact, but it was different. Ms. Leo describes it as a child art form, grown from the parent, but clearly distinct from it. You could say that the original Taiwanese opera was just evolving, but to some, it also looked like it was losing its identity. And while still performed in the local language, it also risked becoming just a copy of all the other traditional operas out there. Then came the 1980s. A typhoon struck the Lanyang Plain and a certain tree, said to have shaded some of the first performances of Taiwanese opera, was toppled. This, for some local aficionados of the art form, was a wake-up call, a call to bring Taiwanese opera back to its roots. From that point on, some local troops became determined to recover the original and simple rustic spirit of the form. Professionally polished, yes, but not so concerned with mass popularity and pizzazz. Local arts groups and theater troupes got the support of the government in doing this, and the results are on display in this exhibit. Here, the stories of several local troupes are told, and the objects they use in their performances of the same four old classics are displayed as well. Well, here we come to the one part of the interview that was saved. It's time for Ms. Liu to have the final word. There are musical instruments, a range of costumes, some dating as far back as the 1950s, plus backdrops, a range of tools used to apply makeup, and even a display of hair ornaments worn by actors. She says that in addition to all the objects, there's also been a film made for the occasion of the exhibit by one professional local troupe active today. This film showcases how actors go about preparing for their performances. And while there may be adaptations, like stages, instead of a bamboo rectangle on the ground, you can get an idea through their displays of what the original Taiwanese opera, or guahi, looks like in its place of origin. The tree that we mentioned earlier, the one that shaded the first performances of the opera, may be gone, but by reminding people of the opera's roots, it's given the form a second life and helped keep it from being totally absorbed by other traditions. If you happen to be in Taiwan, you can catch this exhibit, called An Exhibition of Local Taiwanese Opera in Ilan, at the Lanyang Museum through March 2nd next year. I'm Curious John, and with any luck, I'll see you again next week.
0: Thank God for elevators. No, I mean really seriously, thank God for elevators. Can you imagine walking to the top of Taipei 101, which is now the second tallest building in the world? Well, it took me more than 40 minutes to climb to the top of Taipei 101 back in 2004. Now, fortunately, it has an elevator, which cuts the time down to just 38 seconds. I'm Andrew Ryan, and in today's Ear to the Ground, I'm going to take you on a sound journey on the world's fastest elevator. When I was a kid, we lived in St. Louis, Missouri, which is right smack dab in the middle of America. I remember my parents taking me to the top of the arch, this incredible structure that's 630 feet, or about 192 meters tall. And it was built as the gateway to the west, in honor of the settlers who explored and developed the western half of the United States. Doors
4: are closing. Watch
0: now the ride to the top is petrifying. It takes place in these little trams that go up both legs of the arch. And each tiny little cabin fits just five people. And it tilts and rises and tilts and rises, sort of like a Ferris wheel car, all the way to the top. It's a claustrophobic ride that takes about four minutes, up that is, it takes three minutes going down. And the ride scared me then, and it still scares me today. Or at least I would assume it does because I don't really go up there anymore
5: for visiting the top of the
0: gateway arch and enjoy the rest of now fast forward about 25 years and we're in taipei about to board the elevator to the top of taipei 101 now taipei 101 is two and a half times as tall as the arch we still have to give some credit to the arch though it's a huge arch building it was an incredible feat of technology and architecture back in the 60s Today I'm going to take you on one of the tourist elevators which go up to the 89th floor observation deck. Now, believe it or not, there are 65 other elevators in the building. Now, as you step into the elevator on the top floor of Taipei 101's shopping mall, which is located at the base of the building, the first thing you notice is how dark it is inside the elevator. There's a smartly dressed man or woman who recites a prepared speech in Chinese, Japanese and English, telling you that uh, you might want to swallow in order to unblock your ears on the way up. Now you can either look at the glowing lights on the ceiling or you can watch the monitor that displays how quickly you're moving and how high you go. The ride is incredibly fast, at 37 miles per hour. It's almost 60 kilometers per hour.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, we have
0: Now what you can't see is that the elevators are shaped like twin-nosed bullets to make them aerodynamic. They have sound isolation shrouds, acoustic tiles, and even the counterweights are aerodynamic to make it a fast and noiseless ride. At the 89th floor, you step out onto an observation deck. It's not really a deck. It's more like just a floor with some large windows on all sides. And you can listen to an audio guide or you can wander around on your own, matching the maps to the view from the windows. Now, the trip down is equally fast, but the announcement is slightly different. <laughs> The elevator attendant tells us that we're going to get off at the fifth floor. He corrects a passenger who thinks he's going to get off on the fourth floor. I wonder if the attendant gets dizzy riding the elevator over and over again many times a day. Does he take his own advice and swallow each time to unblock his ears? I wonder if after work he gets that sensation that the ground is still moving. Now at the bottom, I think once again of the arch and how you feel like kissing the ground when you step back down on firm earth. You don't feel that so much at Taipei 101, but I'm guessing if you had the choice, you'd be pretty glad you took the elevator and not the stairs. You too. With an ear to the ground, I'm Andrew Ryan. Pull yourself together already! It's time to feast. Sit down at the table with Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu on Feast Meets West.
4: Welcome.
0: Welcome.
3: Hello, welcome to the feast, and this is Ellen Chu,
0: and this is Andrew Ryan. Hello. Hi, what the fork is going on?
3: Oh my goodness.
0: (laughs) I'm talking about forks. What are you talking about?
3: (laughs) You kind of like, you know, surprised me with that opening.
0: Sorry about that. our show today is called For Fork's Sake.
3: Why are we talking about fork? Okay, fork is a Western utensil.
0: Forks are a Western utensil, Mm -hmm. but you know, what's interesting is that I noticed that there is a certain place in Taiwan where they always serve forks with the local cuisine. And I'm going to talk about Western food. Okay. I'm talking about there are certain foods that you always get a fork with. We're going to be talking about that a little bit later on in our Mm -hmm. show. I have to tell you first though, I have this funny story where I went into a restaurant Mm -hmm. um, and I ordered some Chinese food and uh, the woman came over and brought me a fork Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a foreigner in Taiwan, I always think, like, that means, like, they think I can't use chopsticks, right? Uh Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, man, like, I can't believe it. Like, how long? I've been here 20 years. Can't you
3: tell? I'm Chinese.
0: I mean, I would be super skinny if I couldn't eat the local Mm -hmm. food with chopsticks, right? Right. And so, but I thought it was kind of nice anyway. And so, but anyway, I put it down and I ate my meal with chopsticks anyway, as I'm used to. Mm -hmm. I mean, some foods are kind of weird to eat with a fork, don't you think? Like Chinese noodles or rice
3: or, you know, stir fried vegetable. Yeah. You know, you kind of like use the fork. It's hard. And um, yeah, rice is hard. It's yeah, difficult. It's Porridge.
0: Super hard. Yeah. Well, porridge.
3: <laughs> you can't use a fork.
0: So, anyway, I finished my meal. I paid for it and I walked out and I left the fork on the table and a different waiter. Came running after me and and was like, "Need a chopstick? Need a Your fork? Your fork?" And like everyone in the restaurant turned around and looked at me, and I was like, "No!" I was like, "I was like, I'm sorry, that's not my fork." Really? <laughs> I was so embarrassed. My whole face turned red.
3: No, I think that fork. Is your missing buddy.
0: My missing <laughs> Yeah. It's like, take me, take me. Take me home. Right. So anyway, after that happened, it got me thinking about like forks mm-hmm. and why we use forks for Western food, but not for like Asian foods usually. Mm-hmm. But then I was served a fork with a local Taiwanese treat one day. And I was like, oh yeah, we actually do use forks mm-hmm. for certain very often. I think Taiwanese like Little eats like Chi mm-hmm. um, actually do come with a fork and not with chopsticks. Oh. And so I thought for today, for our show, we're going to dive into the fork, the mystery behind this utensil.
3: Okay, so it's not the fork key from Toy Story, <laughs> but this is the fork key that follows Andrew Ryan around.
0: That's right. So, shall we start off by looking at the things on our menu today? Okay, check
3: it out. In our first course, we'll begin with a quiz again about the origins of the humbo fork.
0: That's right. We're going to test Ellen Chu and see how much she knows. To be honest, I didn't know any of these answers before I really? figured out the quiz, okay. so it's all new to me as well. In our second course, I'll look at Taiwanese foods that are often served with a utensil that has tines, mm-hmm. or prongs, I guess you could call them.
3: Right. And our third and final course will be sampling mm-hmm. Wang Gui. A food that often is eaten with fork.
0: That's right. But first, we're going to start off with a song, and uh, you know it's hard to find songs that have the word fork in them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Chinese word for fork is...
3: is.叉子.叉子.
0: And the cha, what does that mean?
3: Cha is to plug in.
0: It could be plug in. No, it's not that cha. It's uh, a delta cha, right? It's a cross. Oh. A cross. Oh, okay. So I looked up Johnson, and it's all about intersections or crossings, Mm -hmm. nothing about forks.
3: But I don't see any crossing on a fork.
0: That's the weird thing. The tines don't cross. They're Mm -hmm. like parallel. They're not perpendicular. Right.
3: Okay, there's something (laughs) wrong with, you know, the person who named the fork doesn't know their geometry.
0: Well, I think it maybe has to do with the fork sticking into something, and the thing it's sticking into maybe is perpendicular to the utensil. Okay. I don't know. We're making it. Why don't we play a song? All right. (laughs) This song is by Ding Tang and it features our friend Jia Jia, Mm -hmm. and it is called jiao cha, and I believe they have the the name in English is cross. Oh. So, cool. Let's have a listen. Okay, give me that baby (laughs) give me that quiz right now I love making quizzes for Ellen Chu because at the end of the day She's actually I think like smarter than me. So the opportunity (laughs) to like Give Uh her a little test Mm -hmm. is always exciting for me. All right. Yeah, so we're gonna uh, quiz her about the origins of the fork And this is a true or false quiz, so if you think it's true, obviously say true. If you Mm -hmm. think it's false, say false, and then we will let you know what the answer is. Okay? Okay? All right, you can play along at home. So, first question. The word fork comes from the Latin forca, which means to stab.
3: True. Wrong?
0: Yeah, it's false. I'm sorry. It means pitchfork. Okay. (laughs) Which could be used to stab. Mm -hmm. All right, number two. Some of the oldest forks have been discovered in archaeological digs in China. True. That is correct, Mm -hmm. Ellen Chu. So we think of the fork as being Western, Western, but actually (laughs) it originated in the East, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So bone forks, like forks made out of bone, were found in the Qijia culture, which is an Mm -hmm. early Bronze Age culture in what is now Western China. So like Gansu, East Qinghai, between 2400 and 1900 BC. And later, they even found them from the Shang Dynasty. Wow. All right, number three. Early forks were mostly used for eating, not cooking or serving. True or false? False. That is correct, Ellen Chu. Mm -hmm. So cooking utensils were used in ancient Egypt. And cooking and serving utensils were used in the Roman Empire. And then table forks came Mm -hmm. later. All right, number four. By the 11th century, table forks were increasingly common in Italy because of their local love of pasta. True. You're doing very good, Alan. Mm-hmm. True. Very nice. All right. Number five. In some parts of northern and western Europe, they were slow to adopt the fork because they thought it was too masculine to use a fork. True. The opposite is true. They thought it was an unmanly Italian affection. Right. (laughs) Can you imagine a big guy using a dainty fork? Ellen just did a stabbing motion. I can think. I think it's very manly. I think it's manly. Super manly. You
3: know, Aquaman has a huge fork.
0: He has a huge fork. Right. I think he eats stuff off of that fork too, right? Uh Uh-huh. For sure. All right. Number six, the fork was not common in North America until the time of the American Revolution.
3: Hmm, true. That's Mm -hmm. true. Right.
0: So it was a little bit later in uh, North America than it was in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, Final question. Now, there are many different types of forks. In fact, the Wikipedia fork entry lists 35 different types of fork. So true or false, one of those forks is the asparagus fork.
3: True.
0: Very good, Ellen Chu. Only two wrong. Only two uh, wrong uh, uh, out of seven. You did uh-huh. very good. Thank you. So do you... Um...
3: So do you admit <laughs> at the end of the day that I am smart?
0: You're really forking smart. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am forking excited. <laughs> <laughs> this is a this, this show where we almost get in trouble, but we don't because we're we talking don't. about forks. Forks, okay. Right. Um, so your preference at the end of the day... Forks or chopsticks? Fork. Why is that?
3: I like it because you can use it kind of like a Mm semi-spoon. And you can also fork it, you know, Mm -hmm. and really stab into food. And you can curl noodles. So I think, you know, it's versatile.
0: It's versatile. So for
3: me, when I eat curry rice, I like to eat it with a fork.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny. uh, In Southeast Asia, for a lot of times when you eat those rice dishes, you eat it with a fork and a spoon Mm -hmm. together. And the first time somebody gave me a fork in a restaurant like that, too, I was also like, wait, what? (laughs) Why are you giving Mm -hmm. me a fork? And I looked around and everybody else was using um, forks and I was trying to use chopsticks and I was like, oh, I'm the idiot. Right. Like, like seriously, like, reel it in, Andrew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I... Like it too. I think you can you can scoop and you can stab. Right. If you stab with chopsticks, you get in trouble. Exactly. Did you ever um, get in trouble when you were little?
3: Uh, yes. For
0: stabbing things with your chopsticks. Right. But
3: I still stab things with one chopstick. You know, like corn, mm-hmm. corn on a cob.
0: That seems like to make a lot of sense. Right. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things I think is very interesting is a variation on a fork is the spork.
3: What's a spork?
0: A spork is actually a spoon-shaped fork so oh,
3: i've seen it. It, it it's like roundish right yes yeah.
0: so a lot of camping equipment they sell sporks okay. so you don't have to have a spork a for, so you don't have to a bring
3: a spoon and a fork so this is a spork
0: okay. yes and i don't know if you remember this but like when you were in school in america for lunches did you ever get a spork Yes. Okay, so that's where I first got one. With chili
3: beans and stuff. The white one, right? Yeah,
0: white plastic spork. Right. Ooh, not great for the environment. I
3: know, (laughs) but it was those good old days. Good
0: old days.
3: Little did we know. Little
0: did we know. Mm -hmm. So uh, patent, just just an extra fun fact. I just looked this up. Patents for spork-like designs date back to at least 1874. Wow. Another place you'll see them. On airplanes, mm. I think that's probably the last place I had a spork.
3: Okay, so you can't really stab.
0: No stabbing. Right. Okay. <laughs> You'll break the spork. Uh huh. All right, we're gonna go into another song, and when we come back in our second course, we are gonna go through some of the local Taiwanese treats that require a fork to right. eat. Um, but this song here is a song called Yaoi Ko. So one bite, and it's by Chen Mong Chen. Mm-hmm. second
3: course okay
0: so, so just off the top of your head Ellen Chu, when was last time you got a fork for a Taiwanese food can you think of anything
3: uh pyramid rice
0: ooh that's a good mm-hmm. one ba zhang right
3: yeah zong
0: Rou zhong yeah uh-huh. um so that's like the we eat that at the dragon boat festival right right and why do you need a fork for that
3: it's easier to like scoop it out, you mm-hmm. know, because it's sticky rice to cut it.
0: And what kind of fork did they give you? Did they give you like a metal fork or did they give you like a little like bamboo kind of two pronged thing? Oh, thingy? no, no,
3: no. Metal.
0: A metal fork. Uh-huh. Yeah.
3: It's easier unless you know it's in the night market. Then Mm. they probably give you the two prong. You know, it's easier. Don't want to wash the you know forks
0: because the two prong bamboo ones are disposable, right? Right. Okay. So
3: normally, if you go to like Joe Ru, one of those restaurants where they serve the uh, pyramid rice, they usually give you like you know the metal one.
0: Mm. And then you know, as we mentioned before, you can scoop. You can kind of like stab it cut it Uh yeah
3: it's easy to maneuver
0: yeah sometimes it can be kind of slippery and slip out of your chopsticks if you're trying to use chopsticks to eat it
3: true and you know sometimes it's hard to to cut things
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. so can you think of any other items that you might need a fork for let
3: me think um uh, fish balls
0: Fish balls might be good with a fork, right. easier to stab. Sometimes I know. those are hard and slippery I know. when you, you try to pick them up. Mm-hmm. So I posted on my fan page on Facebook, I said... You um, got
3: fans?
0: I have like less than you, Ellen You okay,
3: got fans? <laughs> maybe,
0: maybe a tenth of your fans.
3: Yeah, you got lots of fans <laughs> hidden.
0: We should ask you to post these things and then get the response on your page. We'll get more answers. <laughs> okay. So I posted a picture of um, one thing that I ordered, which is called do walkway, Walk which we're going to have later. And that literally means uh, a bowl cake. Mm -hmm. But what it is, is it's glutinous rice, and they actually cook it inside a bowl. So it kind of adheres to it. Um, And that is a really hard thing to eat with chopsticks.
3: So I think, you know, things that are considered sticky,
0: they Mm -hmm. like
3: to use fork rather than, you know, chopstick.
0: Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Anything sticky, a lot of times made of glutinous rice. Um, so I asked people what other things that they think of. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people said the same thing you said. So the pyramid-shaped um, rice dumpling. And then some people also said another one called bawan or mm. rouyuan, mm. which is also glutinous rice, just made slightly differently. Yes. Uh, the meat packed in this little sticky, slippery package and then sometimes deep fried. Um, and then mochi. Some people said like... Mochi, which is also glutinous rice.
3: Right. So people do serve that with a two prong.
0: Mm. And also uh tambula,
3: mm. which is like
0: um, these boiled items like made out of fish paste.
3: Right. Oh, I love mm,
0: mm, I know you too. We had that not so long ago, actually. We had it during our baseball episode. Oh, yeah. Huh. With things to eat at the baseball park, right? Okay. Yeah. Oh. That was early on when they were first uh, starting nice. to play baseball again. So anyway, those are some things that um, they will serve little forks for. Uh, mm-hmm. One person actually did write in, uh, Emily Tai. She said that when she was little, um, they served the walkway with um, a different kind of, like, uh, bamboo stick, which is, like, flat on one side mm-hmm. and doesn't have any prongs c- or tines.
3: It's kind of like a butter knife.
0: It does look like a butter knife. Mm-hmm. Um, and that you could use to, like... Slide around the outer edge of the bowl to mm. release the uh wangwei from the sides of the bowl, and then you can also use it to cut it. Mm. So we're gonna be sampling wangwe with some forks in the studio when we return in our third course, but uh, mm-hmm. we have another song. This one's called Ikho Fan. So one bite of rice, and it is by Tai Cho Feng in Taiwanese. Can't wait! <laughs>
1: 나도 Shitiata 心默默
0: you are listening to Feast Meets West. third Court.
3: Okay, I smell the garlic.
0: Mm-hmm. Give God. me some of that garlic, baby.
3: And I see the porky.
0: Okay, so what we have here is a big mound, a an orb of glutinous rice right. with all the fillings. Mm. We have pork and um, egg mm-hmm. and mushroom and a nice brown sauce mm. with the so good. umami flavors and some garlic in there.
3: This is super umami.
0: Mmm. Mmm. Better than expected.
3: Oh, wow.
0: What is that sound, Ellen Chu? (laughs) It's
3: caught in my tummy. Mm. Mm.
0: Mmm. Mmm.
3: I know that's why they use a fork. Mm. You need to cut it. The reason that when you're eating this, it's easier to cut. Mm -hmm. And inside the filling, there's a lot of, you know, like meat and stuff.
0: To stab. I know. It's the cutting, the scooping, and the stabbing. All the aforementioned verbs.
3: mm Hmm. Hmm. Wow. This is yummy. Where'd you get this?
0: I got it at a, at a place called the Home of Walkway. Oh. <laughs> so in order oh. to get really good walkway, you kind of have to go to a more traditional part of the city, uh-huh. and so I went to Wanghua. Mon mm-hmm. manga manga and uh, found the shop. you know what time they open in the morning? Five like seven ish. Wow yeah, which is I mean five is probably earlier, uh-huh. of course. Um, but seven am for a place that sells walkway, that's something I would normally just eat at lunch or dinner
3: but a lot of people eat this for breakfast.
0: I'm starting to realize that uh-huh. it's really interesting. now what else they sold at the restaurant? This is super interesting too. They also sold um Bawan. Which is another glutinous no. rice package of sorts.
3: Well, Bawa is more clear,
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. right? It's more clear. Uh, it's actually, I think even stickier than right. a walkway mm-hmm. and harder to eat.
3: And that one you really need a fork.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting that the same restaurant sold two of the top 10 items that you need a fork for in Taiwan. Wow. <laughs> They're like, let's do a whole menu of things that you need a fork for.
3: I love the, the sauce, you know, with the garlic.
0: Very umami, right?
3: Umami. Ooh
0: to the ma to the me. Right. A little bit savory, a little bit sweet. Oh. Uh, hits all the notes, I think. And definitely mm-hmm. the garlicky. Mm-hmm. I need a tissue. Do you have a tissue?
3: No, I don't.
0: I I'm going to run and get tissues.
3: You will. Okay. Well, you know, this is <clears throat> really good because... Usually, you have to go to a night market in order to get this. But, you know, I have my Uber Eats, <laughs> which is Andrew Ryan.
0: Called Andrew Eats. Andrew Eats, right.
3: The A-Eat. The A-list eater. Okay,
0: A-list eater. We should change the whole leader of our show. So instead mm-hmm. of us going to a restaurant and them serving us, it should be like, Andrew, I'm hungry. Go get me Eats.
3: You know, we should have a co-op with Uber Eats.
0: You know, seriously, can you seriously. work on that?
3: And then, you or know, food panda. Yeah. Any one of them. Or and then Oodle. it's like every time we start a show or a topic <laughs> and then we call, we call it order.
0: I like this because it takes the, uh, the weight off of me to right. go and prepare See, the I'm dish. I'm thinking about you. Ellen Chu, you, you're the best co-host and ever. And then, you
3: know, they have to pay us.
0: They have to pay us. Right. That's right. Okay. A little budget for our program.
3: Right. Very
0: nice. hmm well, we'll uh, we'll uh, workshop that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, we're going to leave you with our addresses today.
3: Okay. So before I shove my mushroom in my mouth, <laughs> it's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Email A-N-D-R-O-O at R-T-I dot O-R-G dot T-W. Get a hold of yourself. I, I
0: thought you were going to say before I shove off. Okay. <laughs>
3: so next Saturday on the feast, we would like to invite you to join us the beginning of International Vegan Month with a cactus cocktail. That's wow. right.
0: We're going to be celebrating. We're going to be celebrating the beginning of this beautiful month of no meat. Do you notice how I put meat in our show today? Because right. st- starting next week for five weeks, We're going to no be meat. Vegan. We're going. To, well, we won't be vegan, but okay. we'll be vegetarian. All right. Um so okay. We're going to start it off With a cactus cocktail All right Prickly pear to be specific Wow Yes Prickly pear We're going to go to Penghu for that All right How many P words can you say? Penghu Prickly pear, Penghu. Prickly pear. Pescadores uh, Exactly <laughs> <laughs> All right All right So uh, one final song today and? This is On Topic, if I may. It's called eco eco Bite After Bite. And it's by Weili. And?
3: Okay. And this is Ellen Chu. And
0: this is Andrew Ryan. We'll see you next Bye. week. One person on the phone. One person on the
5: phone. One person on the phone. One person on the phone. One la on the phone. One One 优优独播剧场 you pay five.
0: From a fruit market in Tel Aviv to a fish seller in Taipei, the people of our world are working hard to make a living. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International.